Welcome back to the Fifth Estate podcast from the Wheeler Centre. I hope you had a great summer break. The date is February 17, 2016, and we're excited to be back for a new year with our host, Sally Warhaft. Very quickly, a reminder to head to wheelercentre.com if you want to see videos of these conversations, as well as other podcasts from us. We have literally hundreds of discussions about pretty much any topic you can imagine, and we've just launched a new podcast called Better Off Dead. Check it out, wheelercentre.com. Anyway, right now, we've got a great conversation to start us off. To talk about how large-scale economic measures affect the health of each one of us, Sally is joined by David Stuckler. We're thrilled tonight to have David Stuckler here, all the way from Oxford University. He got off a plane this afternoon from Heathrow. Uh, He is, of course, Professor of Political Economy and Sociology at Oxford University. He has over... 140 peer-reviewed journal articles published on global health in in uh, journals such as The Lancet, The British Medical Journal and Nature. He's the author of Six Societies, which was published in 2011, and the co-author with Sanjay Basu of The Body Economic, which was published in 2013. And his work uh, has also been all over the New York Times and The Economist and uh, television screens everywhere. Please give David a very warm wheeler welcome. Thank you. So we're here to talk about uh, the relationship between economy and health. And the main argument in your work is that economic choices are not just economic, that they are actually matters of life and death, and that the economic policies uh, we put in place should be scrutinised and investigated with the same rigour as pharmaceuticals before they're declared safe to human health. This in itself highlights a great divide between economics and human beings. I wondered if you could just speak broadly about that to get us started. When, whenever you go to your doctor's office, um, you're counting on and trusting your physician to make a decision based on evidence of what works and what doesn't work. When we do the same with economics, it's as though that approach needs not apply. The rigor and testing we put into drugs for safety and efficacy before they're rolled out to a nation uh, doesn't apply to economics. And yet, many of the choices we make are massive, untested experiments with an entire society. And as, as Hope will talk about a bit, the consequences can be profound for better and for worse. Tell us, um, well, give us a sense of of how you can measure this relationship. So in your your book, The Body Economic, you've gone back almost 100 years and you've taken examples of economic crises and you start with the Great Depression. Tell us how you go about measuring that, that relationship. So researchers uh, like myself and our team who work in a field known as epidemiology 
try to work through and understand the complex, tangled webs of causation that link exposures and outcomes. And when we found out about the Great Recession, it was all over the news, the housing bubble had burst, people now, were now losing homes. the Great homes. Recession is our global financial crisis, I should point out, yes. Um, so when, when this broke out, people were losing homes and jobs. We became concerned that the health of people would suffer and wanted to know well, what steps can we take to, to mitigate any harms. So we started trying to get our hands on all the data we could, going back to the Great Depression in the United States, uh, hardship after World War II in Europe, through to the present crises. And what we did in mining big data sets to tell us not just what was happening, the stories of people, but entire societies, is we learned that recessions in and of themselves uh, need not lead to health harm. And in some cases, could even improve the health of the public. The real danger we found was in austerity and how politicians responded to hardship. You look specifically at that uh, choice that in financial crises of, of stimulus or austerity and you start your book by saying we're all global citizens that during the global financial crisis took part in a clinical experiment and we were either handed out stimulus or austerity, uh, these two experimental treatments. In Australia, we got a big dose of stimulus uh, by our former dear leader, Kevin Rudd. Uh, who, um, with his treasurer, Wayne Swan, um, it was very quick and it was very decisive. Um, how did... You don't uh, look at Australia specifically as a case study um, in, in your book, but how did we fare as somebody who... Uh, as an outsider flying in here? Uh, in terms of a rebound... Um, what we we found is the biggest hardship has been concentrated in the areas that were heavily financially dependent. So the banking crisis had its origins in a troubled housing sector, um, banks that had bet on derivatives and derivatives of derivatives. So investors had no clue what risk they were actually taking. And as that came crashing, the epicenters of Financial capital, Wall Street, and the city of London came crashing. And they pulled with it in their wake nations that are linked. It is a global economy after all. And so Australia, East Asian nations, across the world were hit by, and it's perhaps why you call it a global financial crisis, because you recovered relatively quickly. Where the Great Recession, as it's been called in Europe, is still going on. It's starting to be referred to as a lost decade. Uh, at the time we're talking now, nearly, uh, nearly a decade after it started, half, over half of Europe's economies haven't got back to where they were economically from the outset. Um, so there's still a long way to go. So just a helicopter view, looking at how Australia's fared, it, it was relatively insulated from the worst of its harms. 
there are other challenges here involving the mineral industry and its dependency and relationships with China, but that gets, that's another conversation. That might be another book, actually, <laughs> uh, The Effects of Minerals on Health. Uh. Rare, rare earths, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, look, let's go um, uh, back in a bit more detail about the, 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 the Great Depression and particularly the New Deal, which you argue was the biggest public health program uh, in the United States. Why, why did uh, what, you, what you found out about that, why did it surprise you? Tell us, tell us what happened. We started looking at the Great Depression, in part because many commentators were invoking it to justify their policies. It was a period also characterized by a remarkable lack of foresight. Um, I mean, the leading world economist at the time, Irving Fisher, in 1929, said stock prices have achieved what looks like a permanently high plateau. Well, he was talking three days before Black Thursday, <laughs> and it all came tumbling down. Um, creating economic hardship that some of my historian colleagues argue paved the way for fascism and ultimately World War II in Europe. Um, but what surprised us as we started digging through the archives of the New York Times and the Center for Disease Control was to find reports that, uh, as the head of the American Medical Association put it at the time, never before had health conditions been so good as they were during the Great Depression. So we were scratching our heads. This seemed counterintuitive to us. Unemployment was rocketing. Uh, people were suffering. How could health have improved? So we took data from what were then 114 US cities, uh, mapped it out, looked what happened before and after, and, and found death rates did fall by about 10%. And when we dug deeper, we found much of this was uh, a complex picture. Suicides rose. But road traffic deaths dropped dramatically for the first time in the history of the car. Then road safety was a foreign concept. But people were saving money by walking instead of driving. And this had a big short-term effect. Well, what mattered more to the evolution of health in the US were the policy choices about how to respond to debt. And that debate rhymes to a great extent with the debates you're possibly hearing about here in Australia that are raging right now in Europe. And, and again, do you make cuts to finance the debt? Or do you try to hit the accelerator, get the economy to grow, and use that money to finance it? And on one side, Herbert Hoover, the incumbent US president, uh, was famous for taking the line that Americans should pull themselves up by their bootstraps to power an economic recovery. That line felt a little out of touch to people who were queuing outside soup kitchens, uh, who nicknamed the, the shanty towns Hoovervilles to mock the then president. His opponent, Franklin Roosevelt, uh, campaigned on a different platform of stimulus, of, of what he called a new deal that would use the crisis as an opportunity to build new homes, to help work return to people, uh, creating a works program administration that would put eight million Americans back into jobs uh, among a range of programs, and he won. Uh, what then 
happened uh, was another, what we call as epidemiologists, a natural experiment. Because not all states would just take a top-down initiative from the president and implement it. It was prismed through the U.S. states. And some governors sought to avert the New Deal altogether, which they saw as the incarnation of crypto-communism, where others uh, thought that they needed to go much further to share wealth, as the Louisiana governor put it um, in his program at the time. And what we found is this created a polarization across U.S. states uh, that lasts to this day, where those governors pushed more into New Deal spending to build hospitals, roads, schools, even though it wasn't meant to achieve it, it had a dramatic effect on bringing down death rates in children, of helping curb whooping cough, which was endemic at the time, and tuberculosis, as well as reducing suicides. And it's a powerful message because here, again, an economic policy that was done mainly with a view to, to dealing with economic problems had a huge effect on people's health. Obviously, um, everyone can see the association between building hospitals uh, or training doctors. You put money into that and people presumably are going to uh, benefit from that. But in broader programs, so, um, uh, you know, the stimulus in Australia, for example, was, I mean, what did we do? We built school halls and um, things that didn't seem directly associated with health at all. Why does building school halls in an economic crisis help our health? That's an important question. I think there's sometimes a view that health is healthcare. And healthcare is undeniably important, um, helps people when they're sick, but it's only a small part of good health. Good health starts not in doctors' offices, but in our communities. Um, And that's why one of the most important statistical correlates of your health is your postcode. And so people's nutrition, their access to exercise, um, clean air, uh, the environment around them makes up much more of your health than what happens when you're already ill. The World Health Organization estimates at best Healthcare accounts for about 20 to 30 percent of our overall health. So this is, but one way that these broader environmental choices matter. In Australia, um, our healthcare system is—it's—it's it's fairly cherished, I think. That well, there was a very interesting debate here not long ago when there was a suggestion of bringing in a $5 fee to be able to go to the doctor, which had been always free. And uh, there was public, there was enough public outrage uh, at any rate. There were plenty of people that supported the idea, but I think the overwhelming uh, sense uh, was uh, real fear and then retreat. The policy was uh, discarded. would does something like that introducing a simple five dollar fee uh, with safeguards? This was the proposal for the people that really needed them. Uh, can that 
can something like that affect our well-being as a nation? Uh, absolutely. Um, this is, uh, was looked at in the United States. Now, I don't know the specificity of this proposal, but uh, big health insurance trial tested when people paid for health care, did it, did it save money? You think, well, this might be a way to, to get money into the system, and maybe people won't go hang out at the doctor's office when they don't need to. Uh, and what the trial, it was known as the RAND insurance trial, found is that people couldn't discriminate between care they needed and the, what they didn't need. And even a small fee deterred people from going to the doctor's office. And as they traced down the track, they found it ended up costing even more because it delayed the expense and people ended up presenting later with a greater degree of complication and a condition that could have been nipped in the bud with earlier prevention. So there's a cliche in public health that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, and that's what this, this study ended up finding. So these things matter not just for the economy, but also people's health. And with the advance in the US now of Obamacare, the um, uh, act that is providing for the first time universal, moving towards universal coverage, um, our colleagues have demonstrated substantial improvements in health and people from accessing care. These uh, natural experiments that you study, so the um, Great Depression, you look at um, the East Asia uh, financial crisis, um, the, the shift from communism to capitalism in uh, the former Soviet Union. What were the clearest patterns that, I mean, these are very specific moments in time and, and, and place. What, what was consistent that you found in these natural experiments, these case studies? Mm. Um, Eastern Europe was a, another fascinating case in the early 1990s. Um, many of us here have lived through it. Um, where countries, again, like in the Great Depression and today, faced big economic challenges. Here, the case was how do you build functioning capitalism out of the ruins of state socialism? And once again, there were big debates uh, taking place about how to do it. And what we found, um, happy to go into more detail, is that there were devastating effects of economic policies that were designed to build capitalism but hadn't been considered for that, how they might impact on people's health and well-being. And the people who were behind those forms later said that they admitted there could be some short-term pain but had no idea how bad it might be. So give us a, um, a bit more detail on, let's say, uh, Russia and Belarus, because, uh, I mean, it's, it, it's fascinating. That everybody had the same objective, but this was about the way the policies were introduced and particularly the speed, uh, uh, whether or not it was this shock yeah. therapy or something more gradual. 
So uh, stepping back for a second, a hallmark of a natural experiment is that uh, you have as you couldn't do a randomized controlled trial with a nation. A natural experiment is about as close as you can get without taking those steps. And so what you had that was rare and unique in the Soviet Union is you had relatively similar countries that were joined up culturally and economically that disintegrated and splintered and went down a variety of paths of reform. So as researchers, that gives us an opportunity to learn about how those choices impact people's lives. Um, and so the big debate was whether to push rapidly on uh, austerity reforms to try to get the communists out of power and make sure they'd never come back, big privatization programs to transform to the market, or to go more gradually. And Russia and Belarus, neighboring countries, illustrate this divide. Russia was an archetype for what came to be known as shock therapy and, and introduced rapid set of reforms to overhaul its economy, where Belarus was critiqued as being a Soviet theme park because it was very slow to change. And the differences are striking in terms of what happened to the health of these two groups. They had followed the same ups and downs since the 1960s, but for the first time began to diverge. Russia had a huge spike in mortality, an 80% jump in working aged men, a total over 3 million deaths over and above historical trends. Where Belarus wasn't exactly on a good path, but it stayed on the path it had followed. Um, the point is that both countries made reforms in a different way, uh, and without judging the correctness of those economic reforms, what happened in Russia had a devastating toll on its people. Um, the worst mortality crisis that we've seen in a time of peace in the past 50 years. And, I mean, they were encouraged to go fast, weren't they? The IMF and the... I mean, that, that's another consistent thread in this story, that, that when there's trouble, um, austerity seems to be the first call. Uh, you know, stop... Stop spending, privatise, rein it in. Why is that always the, the, the or it seems to be to me, the first, the first call? Well, it's interesting you say it's the first call because it, it does depend. I remember an article by Martin Wolf in the Financial Times uh, soon after the banks came crashing uh, saying, we're all Keynesians now. And... It wasn't privatization. It was closer to socialism. All the banks were bailed out to the tune of over a trillion dollars. We are fantastically rich, after all. And what was going on, that was different from Russia because what was happening there is investors were looking to capitalize on opening up the market in Russia. So, uh, well, even at the time, Harvard's Institute for International Development had a hand in the pot recommending privatization on one hand and investing on the backside uh, and snapping up some of the companies at low cost. It was later investigated for corruption and closed down. <laughs> but that's um, <laughs> another story. Uh, well, um, East Asia, I'm thinking of the East Asian crisis, um, Iceland, Greece, um, uh, these examples that you write about too, of, of, of nations that have um, 
reacted to to uh, demands for austerity in return for uh, bailout packages and so on. Iceland is fascinating, and it, again, it's another um, natural yeah. experiment, uh, but but one where it seems the the people actually uh, took 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 the matter into yeah. their their own hands uh, against the advice of most economists most of the time, uh, the wisdom of the crowds and all of that. Um, tell us about mm. Iceland. Iceland's a remarkable example. And as a side note, social scientists love looking at islands because you can see things that go in and go out. It's a little microcosm and laboratory. So what happened in Iceland is all three of its biggest banks collapsed. This was devastating. I mean, the debt jumped to 800% of GDP. I mean, by comparison, Australia is dealing with about 40% of GDP. I mean, this was a debt on par with Zimbabwe. It, it was the worst banking crisis the world's ever seen, or recorded anyway. Uh, and so a nation that just squandered all of its banking assets would have few places to turn to for support. So the international lenders of last resort, the International Monetary Fund, uh, came to the rescue, and they were calling for uh, a set of conditions on their loans, saying, well, we'll give you this funds, but you've got to make deep cuts to, to your health system, totaling. They were calling for cuts to health of about 30%. They described it as a luxury system. good. Yeah, yes. That's... Uh, yeah, economists have an interesting way of thinking about things. Um, basically, the correlation of GDP and health spending is positive. Therefore, it's a luxury good in economic parlance. Um, but uh, I, I digress. So what happened in, in Iceland then was quite radical. I remember being with the health minister of I Iceland in one of the main health policy conferences in Europe. We were in Gastein in Austria. And after dinner, he was, he was joking, you know, what's the difference between the IMF and a vampire? I said, well, one stop sucking your blood after you're already dead. And I, I didn't realize it, but at the time he had hatched a plan. So when he got back to Iceland, he resigned. He said, I, re I refuse to introduce these cuts to pay for the bankers' mistakes. And that made a difference. So then triggered the president to call a referendum on what to do, to ask the people what they wanted. And so it was in March 2010, 93% of Icelanders took to the polls and voted nigh. They said no to the plan of paying for the bankers' mistakes. So what happened is the private debt from the banks didn't get absorbed onto the public sector balance sheet. I mean, you and I didn't shoulder the debt. Um, and that freed Iceland the space to rather than make deep cuts, invest in social safety nets in a time of hardship. And so we worked with the School of Public Health in Iceland tracking what happened before and after. I mean, this, shock, this decision 
uh, by the way, not to bail out bankers, sent shockwaves through the markets. I mean, Iceland's currency plummeted. Uh, at one point, it dropped by about 70 80%. Um, and then that made it hard to import medicines um, and all sorts of goods. So they were having to spend a lot more um, to get through this crisis. And what we, we didn't find, like we found in Greece and elsewhere, any sign of a rise in suicides. We so commonly see in people who lost jobs. Um, instead, people who lost jobs said they were spending more time with their kids and they were sleeping more. They weren't depressed. Uh, we found people didn't lose access to health care. Um, Iceland spent more in its system to pay for importing drugs. And to top it all, I mean, Iceland was once one of the world's happiest nations. And in the middle of the banking crisis, in the first UN World Happiness Report in 2011, Iceland was again, <laughs> in the middle of the worst banking crisis we recorded, one of the world's happiest nations. In that, though, is, is part of the complexity of measuring all this, isn't it? Because Iceland is a special example. It's small. It's pretty homogenous. Uh, it's um, it got a very high degree of social capital and trust, as complicated as that is mm -hmm. to measure. So how do you account for that? When you're you're looking how how at the at the economic policies, how do you factor in social capital? Yeah, yeah. I, I so one way we do this is by comparing different countries. I mean, we never have a true sense of a counterfactual of what would have happened if mm. Iceland had gone down a path of deep budget cuts. So that's where. We look at other cases such as Greece. Um, and as I mentioned, epidemiology, we make complex causal chains. So, yes, Iceland has a remarkable degree of political participation. I mean, um, when you look across the world and ask people, you know, have you been in contact with your local member of parliament or government? Most people say no. In Iceland, three out of four say they have been in touch in the last six months. Was it Iceland that <laughs> changed their constitution with a crowdsourcing email? Also a crowdsourced yeah. constitution. It, after in the, the end, banking crisis. After the crisis. Yeah. And the bank, bankers went to jail. It's one of the only nations that did so. So again, these are, these are microcosms. But I, I would say the ch choice of putting to a vote what to do, um, Greece initially, at around the same time, under George Papandreou, who was then prime minister, called for a referendum, and he was soon, almost days after, ousted from office and replaced with a former banker. Uh, it was only later, more recently now, that Syriza, Greece's far-left party, did successfully call a referendum and manage to water down some of the harshest austerity measures that were being imposed on them. The IMF, too, I think, have come out and said it was it was a mistake. Uh, the the was it the 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 degree of the austerity measures? Was it the pace? Was it the whole idea? So, I hope Australia, if you're going through these debates, I hope you'll learn some of the lessons of these experiments on austerity in Europe. Um, Probably not, David. Uh, but. 
you know. Uh, we love hearing about it. <laughs> but so the IMF is, is an interesting character in this debate because it was one of the initial proponents of austerity. And its economists had really been focusing a debate on an obscure statistic known as the fiscal multiplier. Um, let me just explain it because this is important to understand in, in the debate when you're having dinner table conversations here about austerity in Australia. Bring this up. Uh, so, so what it tells you is for each dollar of government spending, how much do you get back? And so initially the IMF from some mathematical simulations thought that the multiplier was about 0.5. So that meant throwing a dollar into the economy by the government was like throwing a bombshell at the economy. You were getting less money back. And so basis for austerity is, well, you'd save money. It's, it's good to get the government out of the way and stop the spending. And so they projected, for example, Greece, if you make cuts by 4%, your economy will grow by about 4%. Um, well and good, job done. Except about four years later, th there was a problem that data didn't fit the theory. Um, so at first, the reaction is, well, they just need to do more austerity. But the data still didn't fit the theory. So the economists took a look, and they found that the estimates of the fiscal multiplier were wrong. In a paper recommended nighttime reading by the chief economist said growth forecast errors and fiscal multipliers, they found the multiplier was above 1, about 1.2 to 1.7. And that was an evidence-based case for stimulus during hard times. And when that happened, the IMF began to change its tune. Now, even this had a big assumption, and one that I hope here in Australia in your debates about what to do with your economy you, you won't make, is that it treated all government spending as good or bad. And reality is much more nuanced than that. I mean, even simplistically, it, it's not hard to see that health spending is going to have a different effect on the economy than defense spending. And so what one of our smart graduate students at Oxford did is they took the IMF's tools and methods and just said, okay, let's look at different areas of government spending. And maybe we could find targets for what would be better to hit the brake on, what would be better to hit the accelerator on. And what we found is when we looked at the fiscal multipliers again is that health and education had two of the biggest and most positive fiscal multipliers, whereas defense and bank bailouts tended to be smaller <laughs> and in some cases negative. So the bank, the defense might be stimulating at the time the economy of Afghanistan or off, bank bailouts, offshore tax havens, but they weren't stimulating the domestic economy. So if this is important information because even if you wish to pursue austerity, there's a smart data-driven way to do it that would protect the economy from risks, not to mention the human consequences of all this. And that would call for rings fencing health and education. I'll tell you two things about our economic discussion here, David. It's not nuanced. And there's a big table a really big table, and everything's on it at the moment. Everything okay. is on it. Uh, it's up for grabs. We have a new, new Prime Minister, and uh, he's put everything on the table. What should he take off the table? Uh, oh, that's a good question. 
Um, again, I'm not an expert. You don't need to uh, be here. Uh, on Australia. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, I th it's an opportunity to think about what is the economy for. And one thing I've seen in a lot of these debates is endless discussions about debts and deficits with little regard to growth, well, economic growth for what? I mean, economic growth, Robert Kennedy pointed out, and measures breast cancer treatments. If everybody in the room had breast cancer treatments tomorrow, GDP would go up, you know, 0.2%. But that's not exactly what we want. So if you're having a conversation and everything's on the table, uh, think about where, where it's pointing, where it's going. And when you ask people what is most important to them, it's not their latest eye gadget or gizmo. They say it's their health, their families, their relationships. So why are we building societies that are pointing a different direction to what probably all of us in this room say we value? It's as though we've got our priorities backwards. It's a really volatile, uncertain time in the economy at the moment. I was listening just to the daily finance report on the radio this morning. And it was the first time, I think it was a fill-in guy, but he was, he actually uh, said that uh, he was worried. You know, he was really worried about, it's normally this guy on the ABC, Marcus Padley, and he's really optimistic and everything's always going to be okay. But it was a different guy and he, he said... Um, it's re I'm really, you know, it's really concerning. It's just so uncertain. Nobody has got a clue what's going on, what's around the corner. How do you uh, aim even to protect a nation's health mm. through economic policy when nobody's got a clue what's mm. coming next? So that's an important question. It goes into a logic that we build in our system another economic term, called automatic stabilizers. And this builds logic into our system that you probably remember from a childhood tale, the, the winter's coming and you need to save up for the winter during the good times, and during the bad times you need to use up some of those savings. Well, that, that's the logic of automatic stabilizers. When the economy's really red hot, slows it down, so you save. And when the economy slows down, it helps heat the economy back up. To, so the goal is not the biggest growth rate, but stability. And reducing that volatility, we find, has a lot of benefits. If you look at it again through the prism of mental health, one of the most classic findings in sociology is that suicides rise in the good times and in the bad times. What, matters more is not the direction of the growth, but the magnitude of the change. And so these, these kinds of programs, uh, I'm happy to elaborate, automatic stabilizers help insulate our societies from shocks, unanticipated, unforeseen events. We know they'll happen. We know a recession will happen. It's not if, if but when. If you've got a country like uh, uh, Iceland that uh, uh, had its, you know, terrific social democracy in action and it all turned out really happily 
uh, for them, with the people uh, having their say. Um, people would argue against um, the kind of government spending on programs that, that you write about and say, well, you know, give it to the people. They'll know better what to do to spend their money on their health. So instead of investing, government investing, uh, they take less money from the people. Why is that, why is that not a good idea? Ultimately, what matters is support that's in place. Now, there are different questions about how best to achieve it. At the moment, Finland, for example, is experimenting with a universal basic income, tries to simplify and streamline its welfare system to a lump sum that everyone gets. The verdict's out on whether that will work whether it'll save money, whether it'll achieve the same goals. Um, what we have found is that you mentioned social capital earlier, just family ties, trust, community networks, is often not strong enough to withstand big shocks when someone loses a job, someone's evicted from a home. Um, that's where there's often a need for a more formal social protection mm -hmm. system. Um, it, it comes back time and time again in your work, uh, work, working, uh, and uh, the connection between uh, that basic human need to work uh, and well-being and health. What is health, though? What what are you talking about? Um, in, in some examples, of course, it's, I mean, in Greece, there's malaria again. Uh, HIV is back. Uh, these inf infectious diseases that, that were under control that are now not uh, under control. But has the average age of living in Greece fallen? Mm. So we just had a report out in the UK that says great news, older people are, are living longer. Uh, that was the headline. When you drill into the statistics, there's been a devastating turn of events where there's a 10% jump in mortality and people over the age 85. Um, so you really, epidemiologically, you've got to dig into the data. There's sometimes a bit of detective work involved to unpack what's happening. Um, so overall in Greece, you would see life expectancy appears to be rising. So some commentators will say, look, there's no problem. Austerity has been a huge success. Uh, others will look in the data and say, wait a second, you slashed your HIV prevention program in half, and now you've got a big HIV outbreak. Well, people aren't dying right away, they're all, but they're on lifelong medication. Um, so that won't register in mortality. You have a return of malaria after mosquito spraying programs were cut. Again, it's not going to hit death rates, but um, you have a return of a disease that was thought to be eradicated since the early 1970s, and, and so on. It takes quite a bit to make a dent in life expectancy data. But what, what we can see are that the cuts are harming people's health. And the irony is that some of those epidemics you mentioned, HIV and malaria, TB, drug resistance on the wards, they're now costing more to control 
than they would have been to prevent in the first place. Um, I'm going to ask one more question and then we'll throw it uh, open to the audience. Um, what about in uh, countries of, of ghastly poverty, so sub-Saharan Africa, parts of South Asia, uh, where you know austerity has a different a different meaning. What do these um, you know? What do these findings and your what does your research? How does it apply to to, to those places? Um, it's interesting you say that. Uh, I've done some work on mining. You mentioned rare earths earlier. Mining and the spread of disease in sub-Saharan Africa. And if you ask uh, people about austerity there, so. We're always going through austerity. And if you take the International Monetary Fund, which I mentioned before, but it's really pushed austerity, in about 25 of the past 30 years, they've been involved in restructuring the economies of nations in sub-Saharan Africa, including West Africa, where there was the recent Ebola outbreak. Um, they had put effectively clamps on health spending. So even if nations uh, had mineral growth, like Sierra Leone, um, that money didn't go into the health system. They had pushed a platform of decentralizing health care to make it more responsive in market terms to consumer needs. Decentralizing is well and good, but if you have a big epidemic that you need a central coordinated response to, like Ebola, it doesn't work that well. So, the, um, so there's a long history of reforms that they may not be called austerity. They have the same effect of keeping spending and investment in health low. Mm. Um, if you would like to ask David a question, put your hand up. And if somebody puts a microphone in it, then begin to talk. I can't uh, see, actually, it's a bit darker than usual, I think. But uh, there are ushers there with with uh, microphones. That's better. Um, and while people are considering their questions, I want to ask you one about the United States as well, because uh, it's obviously an election year. Um, but I, um, I'm curious, this happiness index that it, it seemed mixed in the United States, what happened. Uh, Obama um, went for stimulus, uh, but no bankers went to jail. And I imagine the US is not that high on the human happiness chart uh, at the moment. Where does the US fit into this? Mm, one paradox in the happiness data is that it's largely flatlined right. for the past three decades. So to have wages, there's a range of deeper s structural concerns. In terms of the recession, the time President Obama pursued a path of big bailouts, of about $800 billion. Um, and also introduced stimulus packages. Um, so they did both, bailed out the banks and went further down the path of stimulus. And the US had a much faster recovery than the UK, which bailed out the banks, but pursued a path of austerity. And what you can see is these 
both, again, City of London and Wall Street put these countries at the center of the storm. Um, and both were following a similar recovery economically until the UK started pushing for austerity. And that's when the economy flatlined. Mm. Hello. Hi there. Um, recently in Australia, there was um, some in-depth reporting from our national broadcaster into the cost of various medical treatments and tests and so on. And there was the argument made that we are, in fact, spending too much on unnecessary testing um, in x-rays and so on. How do you respond to that and how would you address that in terms of responsibly cutting back or reining in spending in health without, as you say, um, negatively impacting on people's long-term health? Um, each question at a time. Uh, so it's a difficult question to get the balance right. And the, the, in the U.S., the third leading cause of, of death is iatrogenic causes. These are medically induced causes of death. And too much the third medical pair. leading cause. And based on the age group, and if you look in the short term, um, yes. Yeah, so too much medical care can be a bad thing. Can be bad for, for your health. And in India, where I do some work, we found that a hungry doctor can be very bad for your health as they turn an acute problem into chronic ones that carry out. So th that's a question that really is a health economics one. I need to know more about the incentives doctors have to run tests. In the US, it's often defensive. They don't want to get a lawsuit, so they're going to make sure they've run every possible test in case a court case comes their way. Um, ultimately, the, these are questions that there's, there's the theory that will give you different answers. Uh, our approach is try on a small scale a different approach, see what works, and when it does, extend and replicate it. Uh, too often we see top-down reforms that, you know, fad of the day, hold a finger to the wind, you get sweeping changes in healthcare with relatively little or no evaluation. Um, so I can't give you a crystal clear answer, but I share what an, a healthy approach might look like. Yeah, I just wanted to, just an observation really, and perhaps you can comment on it's kind of perhaps what you've just discussed in fact. So I was thinking that, you know, analysing historical events is, you know, really interesting in what it, in what it shows us, but of course there's really unique set of, you know, starting conditions if you like. So you know, do we have enough, you know, observations to really formulate evidence-based policy in, in this area? Uh, Mark Twain said, history doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes. I think one, <laughs> one of our tasks is to figure out where there's resonance and where there's not. Um, you're asking a researcher, do you have enough data? And most <laughs> researchers will say, more data. But I think to make a decision that's without the data is going to be more dangerous than to do so in an informed way about what has happened in the past. And that enables us to also bust up a lot of myths. 
So when people say you can't introduce universal health care free of charge to everyone because the debt's too high and it's going to break the bank, I say, well, hang on, wait a second. That's what happened in 1948 in the UK when debt was 400% of GDP. People thought it was crazy, but fiscal multiplier in action, the debt dropped within a decade in half. So we, we might not have crystal clear guidance, but certainly lessons. Is that on? No, no, don't yell because we um, we podcast to thousands here. Uh, is there some reason why that mic's not amplifying? Ah. Are you there? Lovely. Hi, Hi there. You. My name's Georgia. I'm 29. I've studied entrepreneurship both in um, in Boston and, and in Melbourne. I've got a couple of businesses. Um, the entrepreneurial space is, is of interest to me. Um, it's a hot topic here. Um, I'm interested to hear your opinion on what, um, what entrepreneurship is and, or, or what responsible entrepreneurship is. Okay. That, that moves slightly afield from our book. But what I would say is that communities have model choices about what economic model to pursue. Do you encourage big businesses to come in with tax breaks to try to get foreign companies, perhaps try to get Google or Microsoft in here, or do you try to encourage innovation, have startups, seed funds, business incubators? Again, if I were the mayor, I would try to look at what are local community fiscal multipliers that takes the economy in totality to try to figure out what works best and to try to put some numbers on what's the return to fostering small business and entrepreneurship. Hi, um, I'm interested in what you were saying about the investments in uh, the, the fiscal multiplier if you invest in education and healthcare and how that relates to income inequality and the kinds of economic policy choices you can make to reduce inequality and whether they too are social and health related or if there are other things as well that can address that. Uh, I should say from the data I've looked at, education is no panacea for income inequality. Um, strong statement. I uh, don't want to get into it. Oh, get into um, it, David. You can't, but, um, you can't that throw takes that out at 10 past seven. However, um, <laughs> Social protection programs, uh, these tend to be cradle to grave supports from early childhood development, health care, old age pensions, these make a big dent in inequality. Um, the International Monetary Fund of, of all groups has recently put out a report that, that finds that the power of unions is one of the strongest historical correlates with the level of inequality in a society. Um, which um, may not come as a surprise to some of you, but their bargaining power does make a difference in terms of wages. Um, so the debate on inequality is, is a much bigger one. I would just, again, uh, call for a look 
at the data, but also map out what different options are, because only then can you have a democratically informed debate. When you have a discussion about the budget and the numbers attached to it, uh, do you know what the implications of that budget will be for inequality? What it will be for mental health problems and suicides? Usually the, the, the debate and discussion stops there. It's as though these occupy separate silos. So I see it as a start of a conversation. Just a little bit on that remark about education. Is it, is it because it's thrown out as sort of the answer to everything and it doesn't really mean anything anymore? Who can disagree with more education? But again, as an epidemiologist, when you start working through the causal chains and the complex pathways, well, if you educate everyone without changing the labor market, have you done anything to address inequality? Now you have a lot of educated people, perhaps with nowhere to go that matches their skills. So it just gets, uh, I mean, my job as a scientist is to try to reduce the complexity of the world, but first have to take stock of all its messiness. And I think sometimes the catch slogans and phrases might appeal to logic, education against inequality. But when you get down to the, to the data, sometimes those intuitively appealing arguments may not hold water. That's it for this fortnight's edition of The Fifth Estate. Next episode, we're exploring the question of Big Australia. Thanks for listening. Check out more at wheelercentre.com. We're back in two weeks. Take care. Take care.